There we go. Welcome to the Tuesday night Bible study. Open your Bibles to the book of James. We just finished praying and now we're going to uh, study the book of James. So as usual, uh, I have a little introduction to give you to explain what is the book of James. By the way, if you can't find it, it's in the back um, after Hebrews, about six or seven books from the end uh, of the Bible. Okay, so book of James, it's a short book, five chapters. It's one of seven books of the New Testament that are called the Catholic epistles. Epistle means letters. Okay, so does that mean that they're Catholic like the Catholic Church? No. The word Catholic means universal. So why are they called universal um, books? The reason is because the other books that aren't Catholic or universal are written to a specific church. Corinth gets two letters written to them by Paul. The Colossian church has a letter written to it. Thessalonica, that church has two letters written. These are just general letters to believers. Um, so that's the reason for that title. Um, uh, let's see. James This is the same name as Jacob, by the way, some of you may not know. Um, he was the half-brother of Jesus. Same mother, different father, you might say, right? Um, we know from Matthew uh, 13 that Jesus had four brothers, Jude, James, Joseph, and Simon. He also had sisters. We don't know how many, but it's plural, so there's at least two sisters, pretty big family. Jesus would be the oldest child, obviously, oldest boy. Um, the, the brothers of Jesus in John 7, we just got through the gospel of John. If you remember, they did not believe in him in John 7. Um, and uh, they actually come to get him, his brothers and his mother, at one point in the gospel of Mark, because they think he's out of his mind. So they did not believe. You say, well, then what's this guy writing a book of the Bible if he didn't believe? Jesus made a special resurrection appearance to James personally, his brother, and he ended up believing. In Acts chapter 1, verse 14, James and the brothers of Jesus are with the apostles in the upper room, praying, worshiping, that kind of thing. So they come, came to believe. I was saying to Ross earlier, if my brother had said, you know, I'm the Messiah, I would have said, get out of my room, right? You're like, give me a break. So... Um, but he, they ended up believing. James ends up being what's called the first bishop, um, meaning the first head of a church. He was the head of the church in Jerusalem, which was a big Christian church made up almost completely of Jewish people there in Jerusalem. He, um, the traditions and writings of the early church fathers say that he was such a man of prayer um, that he was on his knees so much that his knees had thick, giant calluses that looked like the knees of a camel. This guy prayed a lot. Anyway, in 62 AD, persecution was rising from the Jewish people in that area and the religious leaders against James and Christianity. And they decided we've had enough with James. They brought him to the highest part of the temple that they could and pushed him off. And he fell and hit the ground hard and didn't die. And so this kind of gross, but they came up to him and beat him to death on the ground after God had spared his life from that fall. 
As they beat him, he was praying for his accusers. Sound familiar? Right, Jesus? Forgive them, Lord. They don't know what they're doing. Um, so let's see. James, interestingly, uh, only person I think from the New Testament that we have, we can say this about. Um, in those days, I won't go into a lot of detail, but they used to bury people when they died. So they buried him, put him in a tomb, wrapped his body, probably similarly to the way they did with Jesus. After a few years, somebody from the family is supposed to go in and collect the bones because by then there's been so much decay, there's just bones. They put the bones of the whole human body in a little ossuary, a box about two toasters size, if you will. Okay, like a small suitcase. Somebody uh, digging around in the Middle East found an ossuary that has the name on it. Um, and it said, James, um, I believe it says James, son of Joseph, brother of Yeshua or Jesus. You say, well, that's a popular name. How do you know it's that James and that Jesus? And the reason scholars think it is, is because normally you would say James, son of Joseph, period. You wouldn't mention, he was also the brother of, who cares? Unless the brother was so um, noteworthy that maybe he requested, make sure you put on my ossuary. Who, who knows? But in any case, um, let's talk about the recipients. If you read the very beginning, um, skipping the first 10 words or so, it says to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Well, that would be the Jews. It sounds like, well, this we're, we're not Jews, most of us. So is this book to us? Listen, Christianity, when it started out, was almost exclusively Jewish. The people were Jewish. As it expanded quickly, the numbers rose so much that Gentiles became the majority and they've been the majority ever since. But there are Messianic Jews. I spent time with one on Saturday night. Um, who have Jews that come to believe that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. So um, that's the audience. It's really just Christians. And so that's why it's a general epistle written, a letter written to all of us. Um, okay, some features of the book. This book reads kind of like the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read Proverbs, it's little sayings, and then he moves on to other subjects, and they come back to subjects. So there's an aspect of it that's like that. This book is way less doctrine um, than you find in Romans or Hebrews, but it's way more about practice, practical life lessons. It really, really is a practical book everybody can apply. Um, James uses a lot of figures of speech. References to nature are everywhere. I'll show you as we go. Much like Jesus taught, he uses parables and analogies and that kind of thing. James is thought to be, it goes along pretty well with the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gave the greatest sermon ever given. That's Matthew 5, 6, and 7. You can read that at your leisure, and you'll see as we go through James, oh, Jesus talked about that, and I'll tell you when we get to those places. It's almost, it almost reads like a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. What's interesting is when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount, clearly James did not believe, but he must have heard it or read it somewhere, uh, the text of it. Another interesting thing is most scholars think James is the first book written of the New Testament. 
really early, as early as 45 to 48 AD. So if Jesus dies somewhere between 30 and 33 AD, we're talking very little time um, uh, after Jesus dies. Some of the themes are maturity, wisdom, uh, dealing with the poor, um, living by faith. It's not enough to know. It should come out in the way we behave, what we do in our lives, our, our faith. Um, spiritual maturity comes back a lot. Uh, yeah, we talked about that. Um, so um, last thing, and then we'll dive in. There are two books of the New Testament that I call Christian midterms. By that, I mean they are the two books, 1 John and James, that Christians can read as a sort of a test. How am I doing? Am I truly saved? John comes right out and says that in his book. Toward the end, he says, these things I've written to you that you may know that you have eternal life. What's implied there is, or not. If you're reading things and going, well, I'm not doing that or that, oh, I'm not doing that, then it's places that you need, you and I need to um, be more in line with God's will and the Holy Spirit's leading. So a series of tests um, you'll see in this book. And uh, so let's dive in without any further ado, so that I know that you're awake, say amen. amen. Pretty good. Those of you on Zoom, say amen, even though I can't hear you and wave. Okay, great. All right, let's dive in. Chapter one of James, uh, verse one. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Okay, let's talk about that. This is the normal way that a letter would be written. If you read the letters of Paul, you notice he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and a you always start with your name, the author. We do this, the opposite thing. If I'm writing a letter to Kristen, I would say, dear Kristen, write a bunch of stuff. And then I would say, sincerely yours or love in Christ, Joe, my name at the end. In this way, you say it at the beginning, who you are. He calls himself James a doulos. A doulos is a servant that has a lifelong commitment that's been bought, that is a slave or servant of someone else. He calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we'll get to those two things in a second. Do you, you notice what he didn't say? I'm Jesus' brother. Doesn't even, doesn't even mention that credential. He considers that earthly relationship way less important than the fact that he is a servant, a slave of the owned property of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Jews were very careful about blasphemy. Blasphemy is saying anything about God that isn't true, or is calling anything God that isn't, or calling something that is God, not God. Okay, that's kind of a broad definition for blasphemy. For a Jew to use God and somebody else in the same sentence and context would be blasphemy. Why are you mentioning this, Joe? Because he calls himself a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the Lord Jesus Christ, whoever this character is, is not God, that's blasphemy. But jo James clearly believes Jesus is 
God. The word Lord, obviously he means God the Father and God the totality of God in the first part of that verse. When he says Lord Jesus Christ, those three names comprise each of the characteristics of Jesus that tell us who he is. Number one is Lord, Kyrios in Greek. It's the word in the Old Testament, the Greek translation of it that they use for God, Kyrios. He calls him Lord. Lord means master. It doesn't mean occasionally you're the bellhop spiritually. I'm going to ring the bell. And when I need something, you come and help me. It means I fall at your feet. And what you say is what goes in my life. Lord means I will choose your will over my will every time. He's calling his older brother Lord. Pretty amazing. The word for God, Kyrios, Greek. The next word is Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew. That's the name of the man. So we learn that he's God. The next phrase is Jesus or word, and that's his earthly human name. Fully God, fully man. Not 50% man, 50% God, 100% God, who took on an additional nature, Jesus, the man. To die on a cross, he had to do that. He couldn't just come down as God and die on a cross because God can't die. God can't bleed, right? He had to be both, but he had to be a sinless man, and he was. Jesus lives, we say this often, lived the perfect sinless life you and I were supposed to live, and died the horrible death of punishment you and I deserve. Pretty amazing. The last word is Christ, or Christos in Greek. It's the same word in Hebrew, Mashiach. It means Messiah, the promised Messiah. So Lord Jesus Christ means that he's God, he's man, and the Messiah was both God and man. He's all three. So that's who he is. He calls himself a doulos, a servant, an owned individual of this guy, the Lord Jesus Christ, and of God the Father. To be a servant of God and be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is the same thing, because the Lord Jesus Christ and God never disagree on anything. They are two beings, but they are part of the one God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the one God. One what? Three who's. Who's he writing to? The 12 tribes. That's a way of Jews referring to the Jewish people. He's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Later in this book, he's going to explain that they're believers, and so is he in the Lord Jesus Christ. So they are clearly not just Jews, they're Christian Jews. Most people don't realize that Jesus Christ comes as the Jewish Messiah to complete Judaism, not to throw off Judaism, but to complete everything that was in the Old Testament that predicted what would come in the future. He's writing to those 12 tribes, and they are diaspora. They're scattered, okay? At the time he's writing this, they're scattered, but they're about to get really scattered in uh, 70 AD when the Romans sacked Jerusalem, burned the temple down, and all that. Um, the fact that they get scattered looks so bad, and it made Christianity explode with growth. It's a totally great thing. That's who he's writing to. He doesn't say uh, grace and peace to you as a greeting, which Paul always does. He uses the traditional greetings, which is like saying in America, in English, hi, hello. That's all it is. There's no sentiment to it. He just starts right out. Verse two, consider it pure bummer my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials, tribulations, trouble, 
and complain as much as possible. Is that what it says in your Bible? Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. Brothers and sisters mean what we're talking about Christians. He's saying, he's saying, consider it joy when things happen in your life that are trials of many kinds, diverse kinds. What's a trial? Does that mean you go to court and there's a judge and a jury and lawyers? No. A trial in life is anything that interrupts the normal procedure of life. Everything was going fine and then this happened. Huge car accident, a sickness, um, a problem in a family or a relationship with a friend or money problems or death in the family, or it could be a hundred things, but you all know, don't you, when the roller coaster of life goes like this, that's a trial, okay? So the thing about trials are is that they are twofold. They are, number one, an opportunity to trust God and grow your faith. They're also, if, you, if it doesn't go that way, then they are a temptation to sin. You say, how so? The trial itself isn't a temptation to sin in a variety of ways. It's one particular way. Trust God less and back away from God and all things Bible, God, Jesus. Consider it, he says, pure joy. What he does not mean is be happy when you have these bummers happen. Sorry, that's such a 70s word. Some of you are too young to know what that is. But anyway, consider it pure joy. I want you to think of it with great joy. Now, he's going to have to explain himself because the natural human response to trials is what? Oh, no. My car broke down. I, I just got a bad diagnosis from the doctor. I just lost my job. We're going to lose our house. We're out of money. My wife's leaving me. My husband's leaving me. You know, all those bad things but he wants them to consider it pure joy. And he calls them brothers and sisters because they're believers um, for the attitude you look at things. Sometimes you can't change what happens, but the attitude you adopt for those things can change everything. Now, is this easy to do? And if I said, raise your hand, if you think you do this, I think we'd all be lying. I think I'm horrible at this. Aren't you? Joy? Think about what joy is. Did you watch the Super Bowl? When people, when somebody scores a touchdown, their fans, what you see when they pan to the audience, that's, they're just celebrating, aren't they? Joy is a settled disposition. So there must be something he's going to explain here that makes us understand that there's something about trials that God's doing that's good. Because humanly speaking, by definition, trials are bad, right? Can we all agree on that? So um, we've listed some of the different things. But trials end up in this gospel being a proving ground. In fact, I told you this is a series of tests. We're already on to question one of the test. And the question is this. When bad things happen in my life and yours, how do you react because the world reacts one way, right? With anger, with despair, with worry, with... Do we react the same way? Are we just like them? Or do we see it as an opportunity to trust God and be joyous about it? So we'll have to explain more, obviously, because that's a tough one, isn't it? Um, 
there's a general sentiment in the Jewish world at this time and in our world right now, which is this, and this is in Christian churches. How's everything going in your life? Really well, really good. We're healthy. We're happy. The job's going great. And Oh, you must really be walking with the Lord. How's everything going in your life, Harold? Oh, terrible. I'm sick as a dog. I've been sick for years. I've been struggling with this and relationships aren't right in the work thing. Hmm. Yeah, I'll pray for you. He's not walking with God, obviously, right? Wrong. If that's true, then Jesus wasn't a very holy dude. Look what happened to him. Same with Paul. Same with James. Thrown off the temple lands, boom, thud, doesn't die. They beat him to death. Listen, the world is, we are behind enemy lines here. When things aren't going well, it may be God is not causing those things, but allowing them to test us to trust him more. I would guess most of you would raise your hand as I would. Do you pray more when everything's perfect or when you got trials in your life? I pray more, unfortunately, we shouldn't, but when I've got troubles, trials. So remember all the apostles, but one, John, they were all in, they ended up being killed, martyred for their faith. Um, once commentator wrote, you don't test a life raft. What's the life raft? My faith, my salvation. You don't test a life raft by looking at it or inspecting it. You got to throw it in the water and put all your weight in it. If it's going to leak, you'll find out then, right? So that's what trials are. The life raft gets thrown in. There's a temptation with a, tr a trial to stop trusting God, to raise your fist at God and say, where are you in this? And he's probably right in the middle of it right? Was it, there's a tendency to forget a great verse in the Bible. I checked today to make sure it's still in there because it seems too good to be true. They haven't changed it, so it's still in there, and it's Romans 8, 28, which most everybody has memorized in whatever translation you read. Basically, it says, for we know, not think, not hope, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to them who believe to those who are called according to his purpose. That's the basic um, text of the verse. What does that mean? It means that if you break both your legs and you end up in hospital, in the hospital, in a lot of pain, God is going to use that in some way that is good for you as a believer. How could that be? I don't know. Maybe you need humbling. Maybe you need quiet time with God. Maybe you're going to meet a guy in the next bed over who's dying and witness to him. And before he dies, he's going to receive Christ. And then you're going to get out of there. I don't know. He doesn't tell us how. He just says, trust me, I'm weaving a tapestry that may look funny, but when you turn it over, it's a beautiful picture. And that's the events of our lives all come together for good if we're believers, do unbelievers have that promise? No. To those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, that's who has that promise. So we tend to forget that. We worry. We're tempted to forget God. Proverbs 24, 10, if you show yourself slack in the day of trouble, your strength is small. Isn't that great? 
The day of trouble is where you find out what you're made of, what your faith is made of. A stress test, right? In the doctor's office, you, they push you to your limit and then even a little beyond your limit. That's what God is allowing to have happen. Um, let's see. So uh, I'm going to save that for later. Let's keep rolling, I think, shall we? Uh, God wants to use that trial for a reason. Let's see what it is. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of diverse or many kinds. Why, James? Verse three, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, staying power. And it's the picture of somebody that is very strong. And you say, how did you get so strong? And they say, going against the storm, standing in the face of the storm. Every scar I have has made me stronger. And you too, right? Has anybody here not been through something hard that now you can look back and go, now I see what God was doing. In the midst of it is where it's hard. That's why, reason number one, consider it pure joy. An opportunity to trust him. The faith gymnasium is trials where we build faith muscle, if you will. You know that the testing of your faith, verse three, produces perseverance. Why is that important? Because humans are notoriously fickle. We flit from thing to thing to thing, right? Perseverance is just the opposite. It's staying the course. And the stronger we are is according to how many trials we've been through. Um, hard to thank God and be joyful, but we are commanded to do it. Um, it's important you remember that trials, listen, don't produce faith. What they do is test it and either prove it or disprove it. You understand? Well, what does produce faith? Romans says faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want to build your faith, just faith itself, and get the faith, you read the word and believe it. So um, staying on your feet in the face of a storm, one commentator wrote, that's what trials produce. Um, the whole idea is patient endurance. Let's go to verse four. Um, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So there's a little progression here. There's a trial. Oh, no. Oh, I'm supposed to be joyful. God, use, use this. I'll tell you what I say when I pray. I used to pray, get me out of here. Do you ever pray that one? The sooner you can make this go away, God, I really would appreciate it. I'm learning to pray however long it takes, whatever I'm supposed to learn, because you're not surprised this is happening to me. Whatever it is, I pray I would learn it, right? So the, the progression is in verse four. Perseverance, that's one thing we're supposed to learn clearly from trials is being stick to type people. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. That word mature can even mean perfect. You say, well, I'm never going to get there. Amen. Neither am I. Jesus did. But you will get there one day when you're glorified. 
either when you die or when Christ returns. But in the meantime, we aim for that perfection. Remember I said that this is almost a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember that? The Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to give you the short version, is a, a bunch of very great and high ethics taught by Jesus. You've probably read it. It's Matthew 5, 6, and 7, right? And the ideal is set sky high, right? He says, for example, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. This is Sermon on the Mount. And he says, but I say to you, which is, he's kind of claiming to be God because God said, thou shalt not murder. He's taking that and saying, but I say to you that if you hate your brother, you've already committed murder. If you call your brother, you fool. You've heard it said you shall not commit adultery. Oh, I'm good on that one. You got on that one? Yeah. But I say to you that if you even look on a woman to lust for her, you've already done it. What's he doing there? Jesus takes three chapters in Matthew to not just give high ideals and ethics. He spends three chapters to a Jewish audience to say these words. You can't do it. Give it up. Do what? Live up to the law. Keep the Ten Commandments, all of them, all the time. Because there's two ways to get into heaven. Way number one, be perfect. Don't ever sin. Okay, well, let's forget that one because it's too late for all of you and it's way too late for me. What's way number two? You need a sacrifice. You mean like a lamb and that was a covering for sin? You need the Messiah to take your place and die in your place. So in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, toward the end of chapter 5, Jesus says the most ridiculous thing. Because he's trying to get the Jews to realize you can't keep the law with all your little washings and kosher food. and You can't please God enough to get to heaven. He says two words. You ready? Be perfect. Now, I'm hoping he's going to say, just be as good as you can be. God knows, you know, he grades on a curve. Boys will be boys. Be, do the best you can. No, he says, be perfect, because that's God's standard. Well, the, since you can't do that, a Jew that was thinking ought to have heard that sermon and said, well, then I can't do this. So what do I do, Jesus, for eternal life? Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. God's standard is perfection. You will get there in heaven. You will be completely sinless. God will look at you and see the perfect record of Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing. But in the meantime, we need a savior. So perseverance finishes, finishes its work so that you can be mature and complete. That's a thing that keeps coming up in, the, in this book of James. Much Christian maturity that implies from being a baby to growing, right? Being complete. He's perfecting us, but he's pruning branches. He is changing you and I. He's humbling you and I at times. We have to trust him that he's making us mature and complete and those who persevere, not lacking anything. In other words, he's admitting here that God works more through trials than he does through everyday life when everything's great. That's the bad news, isn't it? But it's actually great news. Look at verse five. If any one of you lacks wisdom, 
you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you or to him. It's actually the male pronoun there. So this sounds at first glance like, oh, it's like, like you said before, it's like Proverbs. He's already skipped on to another subject. Now he's talking about wisdom. I don't think so. I think it's a slightly different subject, but I think the context is still what? Trials, right? When do you need wisdom the most? When all hell's broken loose in your life, right? All kinds of things are going wrong. This is a verse that says a pretty amazing promise. If any of you lacks wisdom, again, I won't ask for a show of hands, but if you're honest, don't you ever do things and go, I am the dumbest person in the world. Okay, Jim, I saw your hand. I didn't know that about you. <laughs> the point is, if you're honest, everybody, if this was really true, and it is, you can ask God to give you wisdom. And I don't mean I want to be like Albert Einstein. I want to be the smartest guy. He means godly wisdom. What's wisdom and what's knowledge and what's the difference? Knowledge is raw information, right? You ever see those guys on Jeopardy and gals that just seem to know everything? You, how can you have that wide of a breadth of knowledge? Uh, you might know about art, but do you know about dancing and about geography and history and science and chemistry? And Knowledge is knowledge. Wisdom is the application of the knowledge as God would have you apply it, okay? So, if any of you lacks wisdom, every human being that's humble and, and has any half a brain ought to say, okay, I'm listening now because that's me. I lack wisdom. He should or you should ask God. So that's a prayer, isn't it? You ever close your eyes and pray to God and say, please give me more of your wisdom, God. Now, of course, we find it in the Bible, but this is an actual prayer we're supposed to be praying. The tense of the verb in Greek is not a one-time just asking. By Thursday, you'll have it. It's keep on asking for wisdom. Keep on asking. So let me encourage you, because this is a promise. It says if we ask God for wisdom, he gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Some things you can pray in the name of Jesus and say Jesus' name four times and hold your hands tight together and close your eyes and do all the right things, and he won't answer the prayer. Like what? Like, I would like a brand new Mercedes. Please, God, in the name of Jesus. I Probably not his will. And why are you praying for that anyway? And two Rolexes would be really, that's kind of dumb, isn't it? Shows what's your relationship with God? How much do you know about what God wants you to have? On the other hand, there are prayers that I can personally guarantee you based on the word of God. If you pray these prayers, he'll answer. Like what? Like that one. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask of God who gives generously to most. Is that what it says? To all. Without reproach, without finding fault. He's not going to point his finger at you and go, yeah, you do need wisdom, you dummy. Look what you just did. He's just going to give the wisdom, God-given, right? Um, here's another prayer. God always answers. You ready? Please, God, I have a problem with this particular area of sin. You know it. I know it. I agree with you that it's sin, God. 
I ask you to take away from me the desire for that thing. Alcohol, drugs, lust, greed, whatever it is, anger, whatever is your particular variety of sin. It's different for everybody in this room, I would guess. If you pray, please take that desire away from me. Do you really think God's going to go, no, I want him to sin? Or would he say, I can see she's sincere asking for that. I'm going to do it. This is one of those. Ask for wisdom. God gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Pretty amazing thing. But like everything, you ever see those ads on TV and then there's a, but there is a disclaimer. You must order by December 31st, you know, all those little things. There's a disclaimer here. Do you see it? It's the next verse. But when you ask, verse six, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Oh, so there's a catch. Well, listen, would you answer prayers if you were God and you knew the guy kind of believes, but not really? Faith comes by hearing the word of God and believing it. Okay. The thing about it that makes it like a gym is the more you do it and you trust him and he comes through, your faith just grew a little bit right? That's why trials are an opportunity to trust him, to watch him work. He doesn't always get you right out of the problem, but he always comes through. He often, for me, doesn't come through on my time frame or in the way I expected him to. Sometimes it's better, but it's completely different, but he always comes through. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt. So that's not easy, but the more you know him, the more you have practiced trusting him and then seeing him work and answer your prayers, the easier and easier um, it gets. So what kind of a person is he talking about here who doubts? He's like a wave of the sea. Remember I told you there's a lot of nature metaphors here and, and analogies. A person like the wave, like a, like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Now, a wave of the sea, if you've seen white caps, the wind just kind of makes them look like feathers. It's just blowing them all over the place. This is a situation where if you're that wave, you are being controlled and pushed around by your circumstances, as opposed to somebody the opposite would be like a mountain that the wind blows and the mountain doesn't even, doesn't even sway like a skyscraper would sway. The, the, Double-minded man is the man who has one foot in the world, one foot in heaven, or thinks he does. He's the guy in the book of Revelation who is, remember, lukewarm. God wants to spit that person out of his mouth. You either believe or you don't. So he's being blown about by his own circumstances that are around him. Um, the opposite of being st standing in faith. That person, verse seven, should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Faith is the requirement for answered prayer. Is it easier to trust God when everything's going well? Yes. 
than when there's problems, right? How many remember the Chris Christopherson song, which was, I think, written in the 70s? Why me, Lord? Remember that? Poor me. Why am I going through all this suffering? Why me, Lord? Why not somebody else? Not the joyful attitude we're supposed to have, right? Um, so faith is a prerequisite to answered prayer, verse 7. That person, verse 8, is double-minded. The word literally means double-souled, like a S-O-U-L. Um, two souls, two different ways, unstable in all they do. They're straddling the fence between the world and Christ. Christ wants all of you 100% or none of you. This person is a person with a divided allegiance, two-faced, another way to put it, right? They're all holy and praise the Lord in church, and then they live differently the other six days of the week. Um, that person is fickle. There's an inner civil war going on inside this person. They have not fully committed to Christ yet. Um, the proof of that is, if you think about it, if they had no faith whatsoever, they wouldn't ask God for wisdom or for answered prayer. No faith, no request, right? I don't believe in God. I don't ask him for anything. On the other hand, if they had total faith, they wouldn't doubt. They're in the middle ground, that double-minded way uh, of living. Um, they've got one soul for the earth and one soul for heaven. They want the best of both worlds. Um, so faith is the ability to pray and picture your trial. And I actually do this visually in my head. This is my trial. It's in a shoebox. This is my problem. I'm laying it at your feet, Jesus Christ. Okay. Most of you, whether you know it or not, or you may not think in those terms, but when you're praying, you do that. Here comes the hard part. You ready? Now turn around and leave it at his feet. Here it is, Lord, but let me pick it up and carry it with me like a big thing on my back and worry about it. I'm giving it to you and rest in that completely. I'm going to watch what he does. It might take 11 years. It might take 11 minutes or something in between. I'm going to trust God. Is it easy to do? No. Um, but the more you do it, the easier it gets because your faith grows. You become more of a persevering type person, you get that wisdom, you have that maturity, all the things he's been mentioning. The context of all this is trials. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. That's right out of the Bible. But I will tell you, I sense, and I, may, I might be totally wrong. This is just me talking. I sense that trouble is on the horizon for planet Earth, for America, the way we're going. I don't know if anyone could look at America and say, boy, things are really looking up in America. I mean, the economy and, oh, yeah, yeah inflation, yeah, that's true. Gas, yeah, pretty soon, $5. Those of you that don't live in California, yes, that's a five, almost, right? Four eighty, four sixty-nine. Um, rampant crime, right, in America open borders. We could go on and on. Our country, we are in a lot of trouble, severely in debt. Morals are down the tubes. What's your point, Joe? My point is, if we're honest, 
We can see the horizon. If you read the scriptures and talk about the end times, men will be lovers of self and haters of righteousness. And there's a whole list of things. And you read those. I've read it today and went check, check for right now. I could be wrong, but I sense that we all may be seeing trials, the trial ratio or something, the Dow Jones of trials go way up, okay, for each of us. In this context, this means all human trouble, right? But there's one specific thing that was going on for these Jewish believers, and that is they were getting persecuted big time, believe it or not, mostly by other Jews. They were taking houses and businesses. They were boycotting. So-and-so had a, a business making shoes and they spread the word. He's a Christian now, not one of us Jews. Don't go to Dan's shoe shop anymore. So he's going out of business, all kinds of persecution. They were arresting some of them, Paul and all that. That comes later, but it was already starting. We don't have that kind of persecution, praise God, in America now. Could it happen? Absolutely. Don't think I'm wrong. Not in America. We have free speech. Well, we used to have free. I just sense there could be major trials coming. That's not the reason I chose this book, but the more I read it, I thought this is pretty timely. Perseverance, knowing what you believe if things get crazy. Believers, um, let's see, unstable in all they do, uh, verse eight. Okay, verse nine. Believers in humble circumstances or poor believers ought to take pride in their high position. You say, say that again? Poor believers. That's what he's talking about. Humble circumstances. They ought to take pride in, glory in, rejoice in their high position. You say, I thought you said they were poor. Oh, yeah, they're destitute, really poor. Take pride in, be joyful in your high position. How? Are we just going to be unrealistic here? Listen, in God's economy, riches are actually something that can be a huge detriment and distraction to faith. I'm not saying a very wealthy person can't be a Christian. They can but I believe it's way easier if you're poor to be a believer in the Lord Jesus, recognizing your need. The humility thing is huge in the Bible. Hard to be humble when you're worth $150 million, right? And you start comparing yourself and you start thinking you did it and it's all a gift, right? That's coming in this chapter. Um, I just looked at the clock. Let's take our two minute break and rejoice in the trial of trying to stay awake at Bible study. We'll be back in two minutes. I'm going to turn the camera off. I'll be right back. Don't go away. All right, we're back on Tuesday night for the second half. Find your seats, those of you that are here. And we are in the book of James, verse uh, right around verse nine or so uh, of chapter one. And he said in a kind of a strange thing that the people that are in humble believers that are in humble circumstances, notice he doesn't say all poor people, but believers are in a unique position because they're poor by worldly standards, listen, but they're hugely wealthy by heavenly standards. That's what he's talking about. And 
they understand the difference. The rich believer has a harder time with this. We'll get to that in a second. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their exalted or high position. Okay, let's take a poor believer in Bolivia who lives in a hut with his family. Okay? If he is a true son or daughter, uh, he is a true son of God, a believer, then stored up for him in heaven are unspeakable riches, right? He will live forever in glory with his God. He is a son of the king, or his wife is a daughter of the king. You with me? That's a high position. You say, yes, but I'd rather have the wealth now. Listen. We'll, get, we'll talk about that in a second, but I'm going to show you that worldly wealth is like monopoly money. The poor man is poor, think of it this way, in monopoly. It's toward the end of the game. He's got very little property, but the game is everything to him. No, it's not. He realizes the game's going to end. Imagine two people, because he's about to compare rich people in this analogy. Imagine two people, two men, and they each have a boat, okay? The first guy has a 20-foot wooden, nice fishing boat with a nice outboard motor in the back. You got the picture? Okay. The second guy has an older um, rubber raft that barely, he can barely fit in, and so obviously, if you could choose, you'd take the better boat with the engine, you know, and all that. But imagine that both men with those boats, the guy with the rubber raft and the guy with the nice 20-foot wooden boat with an outboard motor, they're both told, you know, when your boat wears out, you're each going to get a 150-foot luxury yacht. Hmm. You might start thinking... Boy, the sooner this boat wears out, the better. What are you talking about? I'm talking about your life, because that's true for a Christian. Whether you've got the big boat now or you're poor now, when your time is up, that's when you win the heavenly lottery times a trillion. And it's not a win. It's not chance, is it? It's because you're a son or daughter of the king. So... Um, one commentator, I, I thought this was just beautiful. Um, the poor man who's a believer might be hungry, but he's got the bread of life. He might be thirsty, but he's got the water of life. John chapter, I think it's seven. He might um, feel outcast by the world, but he's loved by the God of the universe. Which is better? We've said in this Bible study quite a bit that if you've watched funeral processions, the hearse pulls off with the casket to go to the cemetery, you know what they don't have? Trailer hitches. You know why? Because you can't take it with you, Jeff just said, right? You don't ever see the hearse leave with a big trailer and you go, what's in the trailer? Oh, gold, silver, jewels, all his deeds to all his beachfront properties. Can't take it with you. It's all going to burn. 
It's all for a time. Tim, well, I'll save that for later. Let's keep rolling. Um, so if you're in a humble circumstance, take pride in your high position. The beautiful thing is you can't even take any credit for it or be conceited about that high position because God did it all. Christ died for you. Salvation is a gift. He chose you before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1. You just go, how did I end up in the will of the richest being in the universe? He loved you. Now let's take the other side, verse 10. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away, there's more nature, like a wildflower. Like the, the grasses I learned this week in parts of Israel, they're, they're weeds, basically, and they make a flower. The weather can change so quickly there and get so hot that sometimes there are green grass and a flower for two weeks, and that's it. Hot weather comes, they just dry out and die. That's what he's comparing the rich man's riches to. The rich should take pride in their humiliation. Why? They're not humble. He's talking about believers who are rich because they will pass away like a wildflower. And that is the great equalizer, isn't it? Death. Walter Martin used to say the death rate's still one per person. Everyone's going to make it. You die your last disease or your last accident. There's no exceptions unless Jesus comes back, right? Riches are, can be a major distraction for people. Jesus teaches about this in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember when he says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. You know what rich people do? They worry about their treasure, losing it. Make sure, it's, do we have triple locks on those doors? Is the alarm system working? How about the cameras, right? Tim Keller in New York, Pastor Tim Keller used to say that whatever gives you peace better be eternal. Because if you can lose it, there's no peace in it. Well, I've got plenty of money, but there's been all kinds of people that have lost tremendous fortunes. Fortunes. Do you remember Mike Tyson, the boxer? He at one time had a $330 million estate. And a few years ago, he was, wait for it, broke. I don't know how, but right, MC Hammer, the rapper. If you drove in the Bay Area uh, going up to the East Bay, you could go look up there and there was a mansion um, in the hills of like Fremont area. Yeah, that's MC Hammers and broke. By the way, he's a believer uh, now and talks, speaks in churches. Um, if you can lose it, there's no peace in it. I've got great power. Ask all the leaders that have come and gone in the world. In power today, out tomorrow. Well, at least she's got her good looks. Not forever. Look around the room. Look on Zoom. Look at me, right? Nothing, all that stuff, all the prestige, all the... I've known people that had PhDs that eventually got Alzheimer's and didn't know who their sister was. If you can lose it, there's really no peace in it. What's your point, Joe? This is the one thing you can't lose. Salvation. John 10. Jesus says, I hold believers in my hand 
No one can snatch them out. God the Father holds believers in his hand. No one can snatch them out. That's security. So the rich believer ought to take pride in his humiliation because it's coming. You're, isn't it interesting that human, I said this to a guy at my front yard the other day. Isn't it interesting that human life doesn't start with, well, it does start with extremely humble situation, right? Baby, goo goo gaga, you can't even talk. You can't express yourself. You gotta be fed. You gotta be changed, all that, right? Eventually though, you can feed yourself and you're a little boy and an, or an adolescent girl, whatever it is. And then you become even smarter and stronger in your teens and your twenties. And you think you know it all. And of course you don't. And then in your thirties, isn't it interesting that you don't just keep getting smarter and stronger at 70 and 80 and 90 or even stronger? No, there's a point where you go, uh-oh, right? I'm going, I'm on the other side of the mountain now. It's almost like God knew these humans are so full of themselves. They need to be humbled as they get older because it's the two minute warning, Joe, wake up, right? So the rich man should take pride in his humiliation because it's coming. They'll pass away like a wildflower and the thing that was their thing where their heart was they're going to leave it all behind and their kids are going to blow the money in six months. Okay, I'm just kidding. Let's keep rolling. Four, here's another nature analogy. Verse 11, the sun rises with a scorching heat and withers the plant. Remember I said that? And its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business meaning it might not happen at the end of your life. And some people, it's like that. Some people, it's like this. <laughs> Jesus talks about riches. Do you remember when he talks about the metaphor Jesus gives is that your life is like a house. And there's a man who builds his house on sand. Remember that story? Meaning what? shifting sand that's not really a strong foundation i'm building my whole life on getting this phd and having people respect me or having a hundred million dollars or being an olympic athlete that wins a gold medal or winning the super bowl or whatever it may be i'm going to be the president of general motors it's all going to burn on the other hand there's a guy that builds his house on the rock remember jesus is the rock it's a sure foundation you can't lose it once you have it. Beautiful. Okay. Um, so the sun rises. Yeah, he's using an analogy from nature. In the same way, the rich will fade away even, with, even the, while they go about their business. Wow. Um, so it sounds like he's gotten off the trials thing now. And he's, now we're talking about money. But in the broad context, because a lot of people were losing their homes and their businesses and their finances being persecuted. Could that happen to you and me here? Absolutely. Um, but now he's going to return to that subject. Watch trials. Verse 12. You still awake? Say amen. amen. Okay. That was pretty good. Online. You're still awake? Zoom. Okay. I was falling asleep, but I'm awake now. Verse 12. Blessed is the one. This sounds like the Beatitudes. Remember? Blessed. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. He talked about that earlier. Keep going forward, persevering, even under trial. Why? Because, verse 12, having stood that test, 
That person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that crown, folks, doesn't fade away. Not temporary. It's interesting. There are all kinds of crowns in the New Testament. I'm going to read them to you now. There's not a lot of them, but there's, I think, five or six. An imperishable crown for leading a disciplined life, 1 Corinthians 9. A crown of rejoicing for those who evangelize and disciple other believers. A crown of righteousness for loving the Lord's appearing. Do you know there's a reward for just being the kind of person that's always looking for Christ to be returning? Because you never know. A crown of life for enduring trials. That's the one we just read. A crown of glory for shepherding God's flock faithfully. More of a pastor's type crown. But in Revelation 4, you see a weird thing happen. Anybody know what I'm talking about? There's even a Christian rock band with this name. In Revelation 4, there are believers in heaven receiving their crowns of reward. Pretty cool. And do you know what they do with the crowns? They take them off and they throw them at Christ's feet. Well, they don't, they don't appreciate them. No, they recognize I would never have this crown if it wasn't for you, Lord Jesus. You made me what I am. Your spirit living inside me changed me from the inside out. So really, any glory we think we have, it's really all his. Kind of a beautiful picture. That's Revelation 4, 9 to 11. Um, okay. Rich taking pride in their humiliation. Um, verse 12, we already talked about that. The crown of life. That's a general crown that it means eternal life. Those who persevere to the end are saved, Jesus says uh, in the Gospel of Matthew. To the end. They, um, so how do we do this? Number one, to resist the temptation to sin, because if you don't persevere, he's defining persevering as I'm staying on the path with Christ. I'm not going to let this trial make me doubt God, make me leave the faith, make me go off the deep end and sin or do something illegal to, or, or immoral to get back whatever I feel like I lost. I'm trusting God 100%. How do you do that? Listen, the more you and I study God's word, we stay in it. The more he's teaching us, he's changing us. Have you ever added up all the time in a typical day that you surf the web, watch television, watch movies, listen to popular music watch the news none of these things are bad in of themselves versus the time you spend praying reading the bible worshiping okay now that i made everybody uncomfortable let's keep rolling shall we um one of the um a trial is a test by which god shows us who we are in him and where we need to grow it is not the thing that saves us, but it's a test to make us aware of it. God does not do it, allow it, the trial, so that he can learn. Let's see how Joe's doing. He already knows. Well, then whose benefit is it for? Me. So I can go, wow, I wimped out on that one, Lord. 
I have a pattern in my life that I am working on and it's getting better, but it's not great. And it's this, everything's going great. I love you, Lord Jesus. You're, the, you're awesome. Oh no, huge trial. Joe freaks out. Joe seeks um, um, every conceivable earthly solution to the problem. Joe tries to fix the problem. Joe prays as a last resort. Eventually God comes through. Joe apologizes to God. Sorry, I should have trusted you at the beginning. I don't know what got into me. I'm learning, but I'm not there yet. Um, verse 13. Let me say I'm still reading notes from verse 12, though. Uh, yeah, we already talked about that. Um, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Verse 13. When tempted, because remember, a trial is a test. But if you fail the test, it's a temptation to sin, to disbelieve God. When tempted, no one should say, verse 13, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Did you know that? God doesn't tempt anyone. Does he allow things to happen there? Yes. But is he the one behind it? No. He would never entice you or tempt you to sin. He allows them as tests, but he's not the source of the temptation. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, this is an interesting aspect of God. God is, you've read this, right? Holy. In fact, sometimes you read holy, holy, holy three times, like redundant, redundant, redundant. It's not redundant. There's three Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's triune God. He's so holy. He's so perfect. He's so pure. He can't even look upon sin. The realm of sin that we live in, God is so external from that, the two never intersect, okay? God cannot look upon evil, the Bible says. One analogy that in one of the commentaries was a big garbage dump with all this rotting stuff and gross smells, and the sun is shining down on it. The sun is untouched by the garbage, but the light is getting through. So some have said, God is so holy in his realm, there is never an intersection between God and the sinful world. And that's wrong because there was one. And that was 2000 years ago when God came into time and space the Lord Jesus Christ, when he died on that cross, that was the intersection of God dealing with sin directly and not wiping it out, taking the blame, the sin, the guilt, the, the sickness that sin is. He took it. Jesus did on that cross all himself. That's the intersection of God and evil. Why would he do that? So that you could intersect into that world because you would have never been able to jump to heaven. Never. You might be able to jump higher than me. Good luck. We're never going to jump. He's got to carry us. He pays our price. Um, do we want to go there? So we shouldn't say God's tempting us. God can't be tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt anyone. God's never tempted to sin. By the way, the pagan gods of the Romans, of the Greeks, um, of the Egyptians, you read the, the history and all the mythology and all the gods they had, they aren't like this. They sin, 
They sleep around. They do evil stuff. You can't trust the gods. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes you never know. Even Allah in Islam is somewhat that way, where you can't really be sure. The God of the Bible is so outside of space and time and evil that he is purely 100% good. Keep your finger here and go to 1 Corinthians 10. This is um, about, I don't know, 12 books to the left. 1 Corinthians, if you go to Romans, you went too far, take a right. 1 Corinthians 10. When I was a new Christian, I memorized verse 13. And it's long, by the way, one of the longest verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 tells you, God puts a limit on your temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you or overcome you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. Listen to this. He, that's God, will not allow you, will not let you be tempted beyond your strength, beyond what you can bear. But when you're tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Translation. When you're tempted and you sin, you cannot say, you overdid it there. There was no way I could have resisted that. It was just, yes, you could have. There was always a way of escape. Do you remember in the 60s, there was a black comedian named Flip Wilson. Anybody remember? Some of you guys aren't old enough. Can you remember Flip Wilson? And he did this character called Geraldine. And who always said, the devil made me do it. Remember that? Not my fault. Oh, yes, it is. The Bible speaks of three areas of temptation. Uh, it's in Ephesians, I think, chapter two. It's in my notes. The world, the general peer pressure of sinful mankind, which is the media, movies, all that stuff. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Okay? The devil made me do it. Not really. The world made me do it. Not really. We're about to find out the flesh is where it all comes from. Doesn't the devil tempt? Yes. Demons? Yes. Doesn't the world tempt? Yes. Nasty pictures as you're scrolling on TV and there's a commercial nowadays. They're, they're like pornographic. Anyway, shall we roll, roll, move on? Okay. God is, can't be tempted by evil nor does he tempt anyone. So the obvious question he's about to answer is, well, then where does the temptation come from? I thought it was God tempting me. No, not to sin. Verse 14, but each person, that's pretty broad, isn't it? That means each human being that's ever lived, okay, we're with you, James, each person what? Is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire, lust and enticed. It's like a trapping, like putting a fish on a hook. Okay, we're going to get to the progression in verse 15, but stay in verse 14 with me. That word evil desire, fleshly desire, lust, it's variously translated, is an interesting Greek word. Okay, you ready? Say amen so I know you're awake. Amen. Okay. Thymia, T-H-Y-M-I-A, Greek. You know what it means? Desire. Is that bad? No, just desire. I have a desire to have an Oreo cookie. I have a desire to go to Hawaii. I have a desire to 
go to the beach, desire. With me? Now, there's a prefix in Greek, E-P-I, epi, like something's epic. Epithumia is an epic desire. What's the difference? It's an over desire. Listen, every single sin is an epi desire. What do you mean? I mean, every sin is a God-given desire taken to extremes. Example, I want to earn money to support my family or myself. Thamia, desire. Nothing wrong with that. God-given, I want to support my family. Epithumia, I want more money than all of you. I want to take your money. Greed. Do you see? I want to be loved. Thamia, that's a God-given thing. We're supposed to be interconnected as people. We're not supposed to be hermits, right? No Lone Ranger Christians. I just want to be loved. That's a God-given desire. Epithamia. I want love anywhere I can get it. I'll sleep with anybody. It's a sin now. Thamia. I'm hungry. I'm going to have a sandwich. God-given. Got to eat to stay alive. Epithamia. Gluttony. I'm going to weigh 1,300 pounds after I finish this whole leg of lamb and eat 40 sandwiches. I want to be accepted. It's a regular thamia, regular uh, desire. Epithamia. I'm willing to do anything, even lie, so that you'll accept me. And I want to be so accepted, I want to be famous. Epithamia. Over desire. Um, every sin is not God doing the tempting. It's us being carried away by our own inner lust, inner desires. You say, okay, wait now. God made man, yes, and women, yes. Then where did all this come from? It all changed in the Garden of Eden, right? They went the other way. God said, don't do something. Satan said, oh, do it. It'll be fine. They did, right? God created the perfect world with a perfect man and woman. But Adam and Eve had their free will to be able to be dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. It was tempting. So they went for it. Do we have time for this? We do. Go to Genesis 3. We'll do this really quickly. Go to Genesis chapter 3. That's easy to find. Second book of the Bible, right after table of contents in my Bible. Genesis 3. Um, verse one, the serpent, that's the devil, crafty. He said to the woman, did God really, really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? He's saying, you've got God's word, huh? You really believe that stuff? Did God really say, by the way, he's misquoting scripture. Did you see that? God didn't say they can't eat from any tree. He said only one tree, right? So she corrects him. By the way, where's the husband? Off somewhere, fishing, you know, playing music or doing something. Anyway, the woman said, we can eat from all the trees in the garden, but he did say, you must not eat from the tree that's in the middle. You must not touch it or you'll die. 
you will sh not surely die. Contradict scripture. God's lying to you. In fact, Satan's going to tell Eve, here's God's motive. Watch. He knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And he doesn't have your best interest. He doesn't want your eyes to be open. He knows when you eat it, you'll be like God. And he's holding you back. Lie, lie, lie. When the woman, this is what I wanted to get to, saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, tempting, enticing. When she saw that it was pleasing to the eye. You know, we're tempted a lot of ways, but eyes its the, are the biggest one. And also desirable for gaining wisdom. I want to be smarter than God. I'm going to say no to God. She takes some and eat, eats it and gives them to her husband. Then the eyes of both of them are open and they realize they were naked. So they start hiding from each other and from God. We don't have to read the whole chapter now. Go back to the book of James. I wanted you to see there's the desires that they had that were over desires. Um, every, verse 14, back to James 1. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Now, um, keep your finger here. Uh, let's go to Mark 7. So take a left. I told you to go back to James. I apologize. Go to Mark 7. Mark Matthew, Mark, Luke. So Mark chapter seven, this is Jesus talking, James's half brother. He's going to talk about the same subject in a roundabout way, because he's going to be talking about clean and unclean foods, kosher food, Jewish food, non-kosher food. Mark seven, pick it up in verse 18. He, had, he was talking about, uh, let's see, Look at verse 15. Nothing outside a man can make him unclean, meaning food, by going into him. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. Verse 17, after he'd left the crowd, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull? He says that to me almost every day. He asked, don't you see that nothing enters a man from the outside that can make him unclean? It doesn't go into his heart, but into his stomach and then out of his body. In saying this, Jesus declared, it, declared all foods clean. He went on to say, what comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. Well, where does it come from, Jesus? Verse 21, for from within, out of men's hearts come, listen to the list, evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from, the devil made me do it. No, from inside. You say, everybody, listen, every human being since the fall has been born with a disease, SIN positive. We all test positive for SIN, sin, right? Since Adam and Eve, we all have a sin nature, all of us. God sends Jesus to die on the cross to pay the price for all that sin and causes us to be born again. And we're done with sin forever now, because we're all saved in this room, I'm assuming, and those of you on Zoom, except for a couple of you. No, I'm just kidding. And we all still sin, don't we? But 
what James is going to get to in this book is with birth comes growth. You should not say I've been a Christian 11 years and I'm sinning the same amount I did back then. Same ways, some new ones I found. Instead, maturity of faith. Believing is one thing here. The way it works itself out in our actions and our words and our thoughts is another thing. Go back to the book of James now. I wanted you to see that the sin comes from inside, just like his brother, Jesus said. James says the same thing. Each person's tempted. They're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. So the question arises, if I've got these evil desires in me, how do I shut that channel off and hit mute, right? Okay. Way number one is, um, this is an old saying, that the temptation, if the temptation, the analogy is birds, you can't stop the birds from flying overhead, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. Don't entertain the thought. Say this, I don't want to think that, God. Take that thought out of my mind, that angry thought, that jealous thought, that lustful thought, that greedy thought, that whatever it is, selfish. Instead, fill me with your spirit and recite back to him what you know the Bible says about who you are and who he is. Um, the second thing is, the way we learn what sin is and what sin isn't is not innate. It's not within. I can just tell what's good and what's bad. No, if you do that, you will grade on your own curve and the things you do will be just under the borderline. Can your God disagree with you? Can your God challenge you? If you read the Bible, he will and he does. If you choose what's good and evil by what feels okay to you, you're going to get into trouble. So the more you read the Bible, the more I read the Bible, the more we learn who God is, totally holy, totally loving, and what sin is. The Bible presents sin in a way that if you really read the Bible, you see it as the most dangerous, sickening, grotesque disease that there is. It's not something you want to play with. There's a word for sin in Greek. It's hamartia, H-A-M-A-R-T-I-A. -A. When I'm witnessing with people, um, I sometimes use that word instead of the word sin because sin, the word sin is so outdated. Sin, come on. Hamartia. And I say, you know, all the murders and all the rape of, of women and all the stealing and the lying and the cheating and the brutality that's all hamartia. It's a Greek word. And people are usually pretty impressed. Oh, ooh, there's a word for all that bad stuff. Yes. And immoral wars and people taking over countries, <clears throat> genocide, Hitler, hamartia. And then you explain that it just means sin. All the bad stuff can be traced back to one source, the Garden of Eden. Only Jesus Christ. There's no other religion that deals with it. Hinduism ignores it. So does um, Buddhism. Only Christianity has the answer. And I just looked at the clock and we're late again. The teacher's babbling. We're going to quit here, but we'll pick this up next time. Um, and we'll see the progression that goes from just, oh, it's just a, just a temptation to I'm going to entertain it. I'm going to let it nest in my hair to where, okay, I sinned that once, but I'm not going to do it again. 
becomes habit forming and we'll see the result is death. Now that I've depressed everyone, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time we could be in your word. And thank you for this book of James. It's awesome. Lord, we all have trials. And if we're not going through one, there's probably one coming or more for each of us. Help us to view them with the joy that comes from knowing you're in control. And this can be a thing that helps me to grow closer to you and helps my faith to grow if I'll just trust you and not freak out and have a joyful attitude knowing that you'll use these things to make us stronger, God. As we trust you, you'll make us more the persevering types. Give us that wisdom, God. We admit each one of us that we need it. We ask you now for it, your wisdom, godly wisdom, because we know who we believe and what we believe. Help us not to doubt. Help us to know the fleeting nature of worldly riches, God. They come and they go. Help us to rejoice in our poverty if we're poor, to rejoice in our riches that it ain't going to last forever, but your word and eternal life does. Help us to see sin for the horrible thing that it is, God, and to trust you in all the aspects of our life. We ask all these things in the mighty name of the Lord Jesus Christ with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for being here. Make sure you say hello to someone you don't know in this room. Very important. Thank you for being here. Those of you on Zoom, God bless you. Hope to see you next Tuesday. God bless. Thank you.